With what confidence can one put forward a new idea? The plain fact that the idea is new, or believed to be so, means that implicit in its revelation are two possibilities. First, it might be right. It might have required the right set of circumstances in order to have been discovered. The idea's author has the right mode of thinking, given the right set of empirical facts and pre-existing ideas. The alternative is that the idea might be an error. It hasn't been missed or unseen by past thinkers. It's simply wrong, and its author is the lone fool to be misled into thinking it. The latter possibility looms large in the face of so much that has been written and proposed with regard to consciousness. Christoph Koch, Patricia Churchland, Giulio Tononi, John Searle, these scientists and philosophers of mind are giants, and it takes a degree of hubris to suppose that even standing upon their shoulders, my small form should see any further than they have. I admitted to you straight away at the start of this podcast that I am an imposter. I'm at least not such a fool as to assume that acquiring a PhD, reading a lot of papers, and carrying out some studies makes me wise and knowledgeable as a scientist. There's plenty of room yet for foolishness. And I might be a fool, too, but I'm not a fraud. My theoretical framework for consciousness, the temporally integrated causality landscape, really is my own, and I really do think it is at least largely correct. Given some new set of facts or criticisms, my confidence should be diminished in proportion with their implications. And of course, we might all be wrong about some fundamental principle that underlies all the best-regarded theories of consciousness. Recently on his podcast, The Portal, Eric Weinstein was having a conversation with John Wolfe. Weinstein posed the question, how does someone know there is space to break into? Wolfe responded a bit later, it requires an understanding of the consensus. He said, the entrepreneur, the engineer, the scientist, the inventor, the person who says I'm going to create a new company, it is considered arrogance of the highest order. They are basically saying, this is the way that the world ought to look and I'm going to go create it, or I've invented something and nobody knows about it. But in any of those cases, I think it requires an understanding of what everybody else believes and then having the confidence to say, I'm going to go orthogonally in this different direction. Weinstein said, quote, What I find is that there are two separate things. Do you have creativity to break into new space? And do you have the disagreeability in your nature to tell everyone else, no, you're all wrong, let me do my thing? The number of times I've seen somebody innovate something, and they cannot find the bad attitude necessary to carry that thing to market, unquote. I can understand this point. It doesn't solve the problem of whether the new idea is a good one or not, but at least the assertiveness to present the idea for ridicule or praise or indifference gives the thing a chance. I have calculated, I hope correctly, that elaborating the TICL framework and submitting it for publication is the best first step. I think starting this podcast and discussing my ideas openly is a good first step, too. In coordination, these are my gambits for breaking into the field of consciousness study as a potential contributor and thinker worthy of taking note of. Of course, I have to recognize that I might have conflicting motives and try to find the best balance. I want both to be liked and acknowledged by my heroes, and I want to present my own ideas that might disagree with or upset their firmly positioned notions. I guess the enterprise is a competitive cooperation like all science. One of the key insights that I think my framework brings to the table is an emphasis on the conscious point of view. In episode 9 on self-identity, I said the following. 
it looks to me like there are two distinct concepts of self. The first is the self as point of view. As long as we are conscious, we are identical to this point of view upon the contents of our consciousness. The thing which answers to I in the statement, I see a bird, is the self as point of view. The second concept of self is an illusory construct that seems to answer to I in the statement, I am anxious. Here, the first self, the point of view, is mistakenly identified with the self-construct. We each have a sense of our past experiences and how they have led to the present moment, but the point of view can only access the past through the present recall or reinstatement of their traces in the present. In this sense, self as point of view has no past. Rather, it exists as the present, whatever the present is from its, well, point of view. The self-construct has a past and a future. It has hopes and fears. It has goals which I, the point of view, am aware of and feel belong to me. Finally, the self-construct has a personality, has modes of thinking. I, the point of view, am subject to the thoughts and feelings and longings as contents of my experience. Imagine that you are given a drug that once its effects take hold, separate, separates entirely your self-construct from your point of view. Perhaps the drug selectively inhibits the default mode network. However it works, you retain under its influence a state of consciousness. You are having experiences now. You are conscious of contents. You see and hear what's in your environment, but you have lost the sense of who you are, your history, your personality, your name, and who you know. It's difficult to say how this experience might feel because the way that we perceive things in the world depends on our personalities and histories, immediate goals, etc. What seems undeniable, though, is that you, the point of view to which conscious contents exist, would continue to be. You might sit in a chair looking out the window like someone in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, being nothing more than a flow of your conscious present. Even under such limited conditions of being, though, you would continue to have experiences, and you would therefore be conscious. Contents would be appearing from your point of view. It is this point of view that I will explore in today's episode. Where is the point of view coming from? I have previously argued that we should dispense with notions of dualism. The idea that there are separate categories of existence, that of the physical and that of the mental. Recall from the first episode my starting assumption that the brain contains the physical substrate of consciousness and the assumption that all chemistry and biology reduce to physics. Gilbert Ryle criticized dualistic conceptions of consciousness as what he called the official doctrine in his book, The Concept of Mind. He wrote, quote, The official doctrine, which hails chiefly from Descartes, is something like this. With the doubtful exceptions of idiots and infants in arms, every human being has both a body and a mind. Some would prefer to say that every human being is both a body and mind. His body and his mind are ordinarily harnessed together, but after the death of the body, his mind may continue to exist and function. Human bodies are in space and are subject to the mechanical laws which govern all other bodies in space. Bodily processes and states can be inspe inspected by external observers. So a man's bodily life is as much a public affair as are the lives of animals and reptiles and even as the careers of trees, crystals, and planets. But minds are not in space, nor are their operations subject to mechanical laws. The workings of one mind are not witnessable by other observers. Its career is private. Only I can take direct cognizance of the states and processes of my own mind. A person, therefore, lives through two collateral histories, 
one consisting of what happens in and to his body, the other consisting of what happens in and to his mind. The first is public, the second private. The events in the first history are events in the physical world. Those in the second are events in the mental world." Unquote. My assumption, declared in the first episode that consciousness arises from the brain, presupposes that there is no separate mental reality and no ghostly passenger riding along with each human body. In episode 4, I explained why neuroscientists believe the thalamocortical system to be the proximate substrate of consciousness. Not all of the thalamocortical system, and not all of the time, though. The point of view should therefore be contained there. But where exactly? Is there a homunculus located somewhere in the thalamocortical system and keeping watch on what is happening there? Daniel Dennett criticized the idea of a homunculus, or Cartesian theater in the brain, that occurs at the boundary between inputs and outputs. In Consciousness Explained, he wrote, quote, the Cartesian theater is a metaphorical picture of how conscious experience must sit in the brain. It seems at first to be an innocent extrapolation of the familiar and undeniable fact that for everyday macroscopic time intervals, we can indeed order events in the two categories, not yet observed and already observed. We do this by locating the observer at a point and plotting the motions of the vehicles of information relative to that point. But when we try to extend this method to explain phenomena involving very short time intervals, we encounter a logical difficulty. If the point of view of the observer must be smeared over a rather large volume in, in the observer's brain, the observer's own subjective sense of sequence and simultaneity must be determined by something other than order of arrival, since order of arrival is incompletely defined until the relevant destination is specified." Unquote. Further, Dennett wrote, quote, the idea of a special center in the brain is the most tenacious bad idea bedeviling our attempts to think about consciousness. As we shall see, it keeps reasserting itself in new guises and for a variety of ostensibly compelling reasons. To begin with, there is our personal introspective appreciation of the unity of consciousness which impresses on us the distinction between in here and out there." Unquote. Dennett notes here that the point of view of the observer must be smeared over a rather large volume of the observer's brain. This is so because there is no central node to which everything that ends up in consciousness is conveyed. The neuronal correlate of consciousness for any individual percept occurs somewhere in the cerebral cortex, but different kinds of contents are caused by different areas of the cortex that underlie them. There are specialized networks at particular, often distant locations of the human cerebral cortex. One possible solution to this problem was provided by Bernard Bars in 1988 in A Cognitive Theory of Consciousness, in which he described the global workspace model. He wrote, quote, The model we pursue in this book suggests that conscious experience involves a global workspace, a central information exchange that allows many different specialized processors to interact. Processors that gain access to the global workspace can broadcast a message to the entire system. This is one kind of cognitive architecture, one that allows us to combine many useful metaphors, empirical findings, and traditional insights regarding consciousness into a single framework. The word global in this context simply refers to information that is usable across many different subsystems of a larger system. It is the need to provide global information to potentially any subsystem that makes conscious experience different from the many specialized local processors in the nervous system." Unquote. 
A more contemporary version called Global Neuronal Workspace is described by Stanislas Dehaene in his book Consciousness and the Brain. Dehaene writes, quote, Global Neuronal Workspace Theory proposes that what we experience as consciousness is the global sharing of information. The brain contains dozens of local processors, each specialized for one type of operation. A specific communication system, the global workspace, allows them to flexibly share information. At any given moment, the workspace selects a subset of processors, establishes a coherent representation of the information they encode, holds it in mind for an arbitrary duration, and disseminates it back to virtually any of the other processors. Whenever a piece of information accesses the workspace, it becomes conscious." Unquote. According to Bars, the global workspace is a distributed collection of specialized networks. But in my opinion, this model doesn't answer for the single point of view occurring in a unified conscious mind. If Bars was trying to explain a brainy but non-conscious automaton and how it accomplished coordinated cognitive and behavioral tasks, I think the global workspace might be a good place to start. A bunch of sophisticated parallel processors would clearly not be sufficient since one part of the system needs to know what the other parts are up to. So a broadcast from each part to the others might provide a means to engineer the automaton. But we've already agreed that I am not an automaton and neither are you. It's difficult to position a point of view in the global workspace model. The point of view needs to be global in order to encompass the specialized networks that produce contents, but not global as BARS defines it, meaning usable by different specialized processors. The contents have to be part of consciousness. They can't be broadcast to consciousness. This is analogous to seeing a tree in the material world. I'm not seeing that tree. I'm seeing this tree, the one in my mind, the one that exists in my mental model of the material world. The map and the territory cannot be the same thing, and they must not be confused. Just as the tree in the material terrain is located next to Hill 16, the map upon which they appear shows them adjacent to one another. The conscious contents of the tree and the hill are both on the same map, and in a unified conscious mind, all of the contents are on a single, multimodal map, or perhaps, better yet, a single atlas of maps, what I call the landscape of consciousness. The point of view must be equal to or greater than the landscape in order for any contents that occur on that landscape to exist to it. Extending the atlas of maps, which is a pretty good metaphor for the integrated cerebral cortex, if I might say so, to the different sensory modalities, sight, touch, hearing, and so on, we have a multi-layered concept of a three-dimensional environment. It's like a contour map and a political map, a climatic map and a road map that all reflect characteristics of a common territory. A sequence of such maps might itself be a new map in the temporal dimension, with long-term memory providing a kind of directory. And abstract comparisons among features of all these different maps might be achievable through reasoning and thought. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape, consciousness is composed of meaningful contents established in the relationship between a large integrated system and some number of integrated and differentiated subsystems existing within that larger system. The level of temporally integrated causality for the whole system from which consciousness arises sets a threshold for meaning. Any subsystem will produce meaningful contents because it will, by definition, have a level of temporally integrated causality that exceeds the threshold. 
Because the thalamocortex is organized in an orderly fashion, not a random one, the particular subsystems that occur at any given time will have particular specific contents that are meaningful from the point of view of the system as a whole. So for the TICL, the point of view is larger than and includes the contents of consciousness within it. The point of view is not some homunculus over here that witnesses goings on over there. In the global workspace model, the specialized processors are informed of what is happening elsewhere in the cortex, but what is the point of view that unites this information? Does each individual processor have its own point of view? Of course not. That just gets us from one homunculus to many, and no closer to a reasonable answer. Another leading theory of consciousness is integrated information theory, IIT. According to IIT, the maximally irreducible set of causally integrated elements over a definite time frame is, at that time, the substrate of consciousness, the whole composition of contents. The thing experienced and the thing doing the experiencing are thus one and the same. This is not an incoherent idea. In fact, I rather like it, but I think it is wrong. For the TICL, the point of view experiences the contents within it. The subsystems produce the contents, and the system produces the point of view. Since they are part of the system, the subsystemic activities exist to the system. The whole system is integrated, but the individual subsystems are integrated in order to be differentiated from one another and from the whole. The manner in which they are differentiated enables them to have meaning from the larger point of view. I can't know whether my solution to the conscious point of view is correct, but it seems highly plausible to me. And it seems like a necessary aspect of consciousness that has to be included in a successful theory. The insight that the point of view must encompass the things it views imposes a powerful limitation on the final theory. This is powerful because of the work it does in defining who or what in the universe might therefore exhibit a conscious mind. According to the TICL, consciousness requires a point of view and contents to be viewed, and the contents can only be viewed if their substrate is an integrated component of the substrate of the point of view. This means that integrated and differentiated neural activities, such as those occurring in the animal brain, can produce conscious minds but devices which work by parallel feed-forward functions, including computer programs and clocks and thermostats, cannot. Could an artificially intelligent system be engineered such that it does have a conscious mind? That's another story altogether. Of course it could.